Praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. Why don't we stand this morning, go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to be with us in our Sunday school classes. Amen. Bishop's out of town, so I will be teaching the adult class this morning. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, for your goodness and for your mercies. We are nothing without you, Lord. We need your touch, your anointing. Let the power of the Holy Ghost overshadow us, the word, and through all the classrooms. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. amen. If you like standing for the word, just grab your word. I'll read a few scriptures and I'll let you be seated. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse number 16. <clears throat> this is the covenant that I will make with, the, with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, having therefore, brother, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, everybody say, let us draw near, with a true heart, everybody say, with a true heart, true heart, in fullest assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to talk about this morning having a true heart. And here in the book of Hebrews, it's a powerful portion of scripture, but Hebrews 9 and 10 uh, specifically talk about the Old Testament tabernacle and how it was a, used to be a, uh, let's see if I can get this, focused here. There you go. That's the Old Testament tabernacle. That's how they would approach God in the Old Testament. Most of us are familiar with it, but this is the old covenant that God made with Moses, and he instituted it in the wilderness, and, and this is how they would come. Right here under this tent here was what they called the inner court. This is the outer court here, and you've got the brazen altar where they did the sacrifice and the braven labor where they would wash, representing repentance and baptism. And then you would go to the inner court, coming into the inner court, and the priest would go in there, the high priest. And in this picture here, it represents the tent part, what you find underneath that tent. So you have here, once again, you have this altar of sacrifice, and then the labor where they would wash. You come into the holy place here, and that's where the table of showbread was, and the altar of incense, and the candlesticks were in there. And then there was the veil that was there, and the veil separated everything from the presence of God. And this, the holiest of holies, this is where the presence of God would dwell, right? So the priest would go in for the people, the high priest would go in for the people once a year. 
go into the presence of God, and he would make uh, intercession for them, and God would forgive them of their sins and iniquities for that year, okay? So that's kind of what Hebrews is talking about. And if we had time to look into the whole thing, we don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to read um, Hebrews 9 and 10. And it talks about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant being a shadow of things to new, of things to come. And so this is where the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, is picking up in verse 16. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their heart, all right, and in their minds while I write them. Their iniquities, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Remember when the high priest went in there and just kind of pushed their sins over for the next year. But Jesus, he died once and for all for our sins to be immediately washed away forever. There is no remembrance of them. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That's, that's why we don't bring an offering anymore, right? And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down the road, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus became our supreme sacrifice. And so he became the one that went into the holiest of holies, if you will. And that's why when he was on the cross and he said, It is finished, what happened? The veil was rent, right? This veil here. The Bible says was rent in two pieces. And the Bible tells us it's signifying now that we can now come boldly into the presence of God. All right. Therefore, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, verse 20, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. All right, so we have, and then verse 21 says, having a high priest over the house of God. So I'm just trying to lay the foundation that most of us know, but the fact that, and to remind us of the fact that we have this great privilege to come boldly into the presence of God. Now, we're, some of us have been around a long time, we understand that, we hear that, but we need to remind ourselves what a great privilege it is and an honor and we should give great reverence to the presence of God that we feel to the house of God, amen, because that we have this great privilege now. We don't have to go through a priest. We, don't have, we have the high priest, Jesus Christ. He was our high priest that went in and offered this sacrifice for us so we don't have to go to a priest and confess our sins. We can come into his presence. And he said, "Don't not only can we come into it, but we can come in with boldness. In other words, he's saying we can come in with confidence that he's going to have grace and mercy on this. Verse 20, by a new and living way, he's made a new way. And verse 22, of course, is where I'm taking my thought from today. Let us draw near with a true heart. Everybody say true heart. Full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. They used to go into the, into the holiest of holy and they'd take the blood from the altar of sacrifice and they'd sprinkle that blood on there and they would get the remission of their sins. But he's saying our hearts sprinkled. It's our hearts from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Conscience means this, moral awareness. 
that we have to come to the, into the uh, presence of God with an awareness. We can come in boldly, and that doesn't mean cocky. That just means with confidence and full assurance. It means go ahead, bring your petition, speak your voice, speak your mind. Amen. We can do that. We can come before him, and we're, we're clear from this conscience, this, this evil conscience. We can have a moral awareness. That's what God is trying to do with us. To bring us to an awareness within our heart. Not just going through the motions of some tabernacle prayer. We'll get into it more. But he says it's, it's also like on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached to him. And what did he say? He said, uh, what did the Bible say? It says they were pricked in their hearts. In their hearts they got convicted. We, we crucified the Messiah. And they asked the question, what must we do? To be saved, what shall, what shall we need? What shall we do? They had this moral awareness; their conscience was awakened, so to speak, and they were able to understand that, hey, I need to do something with what I know now. Hebrews chapter four, verse sixteen, it says, "Let us therefore come boldly." Another use of that word there, with boldly, with confidence, under the throne of grace to obtain mercy. And find grace in a time of need. I don't know if it's just in studying this, but I, I, I was just reminded. And I'm aware more than ever before this morning of the underlying foundation of the whole word of God is the value of a soul. A value of one soul. The Bible says it's worth more than all the world. Our souls are worth more than all the world. The ones that are says nobody higher or lower, amen, in God's kingdom, but we all come on a playing field of we're a soul that God is trying to get the attention of. He's trying to get us to enter into his presence. And when we do, we can come with confidence that we're going to find mercy. He's a merciful God. Hallelujah. Full of grace in a time of need. So, we have here this great invitation, right? Come near. Draw near, he's saying. You've got this great invitation. Draw near to his presence. But it comes with this stipulation upon it. Draw near. But he says, I want you to draw near with what? A true heart. Look at your neighbor and said, do you have a true heart? You don't have to answer the question. Just within yourself. So as we look into the word of God, and like I said, the soul is, is the most important thing to God, his creation. That's what it's all about, right? That's why he came and bled and died for us, to, that we might know him. Hallelujah. And so as we look at the, the underlying theme throughout it is God trying to reveal himself to his people and for them to come to him, amen, to approach God with a true heart. True simply means this, to be real, to be genuine, to be authentic, sincere, not having deceitfulness, not to, be, uh, not to lie hid or to hide yourself, not to be ignorant and not to be unaware. Remember we talked about the conscience was becoming aware, moral awareness, Trueness also needs to become aware and not to hide. He's saying, come into my presence 
but don't do it hiding anything. Amen. It's kind of like Adam and Eve, right? We have the first example way back in the garden. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They sinned, right? What's the first thing after they did that? They hid themselves, right? They went and hid themselves from the presence of God. And so God asked them a few questions that God already knew the answer to. Adam and Eve already knew the answer to them, right? He says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? God's asking them some questions. Why is he asking him these questions? It's because he wants to get them to do an inventory of the heart, basically. He wants them to be aware what happened, what just happened here. And we do it kind of the same way with our own children, don't we? You go in the living room, there's a broken lamp, and there's a baseball beside the broken lamp. Nobody is around to be found. You and Johnny are the only ones in the house. And you say, little Johnny, where are you? Get in here right now. <laughs> we treat our own kids that way. So he comes climbing in and you begin to ask him a series of questions that you already know the answer to. <laughs> Just like God did. And he says, Johnny, did you break this lamp? Did you do what I told you not to? Did I not tell you? Do not throw the ball in the house? And so we begin to ask a series of questions. It's our human nature. And really what we're trying to get him, little Johnny, to do is what? Fess up, right? We want him to be honest. We're not going to disown him. We're not going to kick him out of the house. We're not going to throw him on the street. We want him to own up to that. He's our child. We're wanting him to think, right? to come aware of what just happened. We're wanting him to be consciously aware of what he did, he disobeyed. And so we do that if we find that, and this is a, this is a problem here, if he doesn't fess up, then we know we have a bigger problem on our hand, right? That's when we really get concerned. If he, he says, no, I didn't do it. I don't, know, I don't know where that's not even my ball. I don't know where that came from. I mean, you know good and well that he did it, right? And so if he doesn't fess up to it, then we realize that we have a bigger problem. And it doesn't change with our approach to God. He's saying, I need you to come into my presence with a true heart. Be honest. Be open. Don't hide from me. In reality, you can't hide from me. Hallelujah. We can't do it. But he doesn't want us to come in with things hidden. He said, come in, open up. You're going to find grace and mercy. I'm not going to say you're not my kid anymore. I'm not even going to kick you by the wayside. That's what I'm trying to get you to do is to come into my presence and open up. There's a saying that says this, the day you graduate from childhood to adulthood is the day that you really take the full responsibility for your life, your own actions. When you begin to do that, that's when you, that's when you really graduate from being a child to adult. When you say it's my life and everything that's happened into it is basically a result of what I've done. And w sad to say we have people that are in their 50s and 60s and 70s still do not take responsibility for their own life. Right? We still blame others. Circumstances in the past. And sometimes they are uh, the fault of someone else. But we just need to be able to take responsibility for our own life. And say, I don't know, I didn't have any control over those things in the past. But from here on out, I'm going to 
accomplish what God desires for me to accomplish. So it's the same way in our relationship with God. We've got to take the responsibility for our own lives. And it comes to a place, what we call repentance, right? That's what it's all about, repentance. The changing of the mind, amen? It means to exercise the mind. It means to reconsider. And after all of our scolding, we say, okay, now, Johnny, I want you to go to your bedroom, and I want you to think about what you've done, <laughs> right? <laughs> why do we do that? You know, it's, and the kid's like, well, why am I going to think about it? It's because we want them to become aware. God wants us to become aware, to consider, reconsider the direction that we're going. Repentance. Hallelujah. That's why it's the first step to salvation. Repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the, that's the step of salvation. Repentance, baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so we have the first thing that we have to do when we come into God's presence is repent. Without repentance, you'll really, true repentance, you'll never receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you truly repent, there's no greater time than when you first initially receive the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no purer time in your life. It's for that moment you've set the clay, uh, slate clean before the Lord, been honest, say, I need you, Lord. Baptism, now we baptize a lot of people because they get convicted. <clears throat> they see the natural part of it, I need to get baptized, but without true repentance. And nobody really knows that. I always, before I baptize somebody, uh, have you repented? That's the only prerequisite for being baptized is repentance. True repentance. It's not just going through the motions and getting wet and coming back up again. That doesn't save us. It's the repentance that saves us. The changing of the heart. Saying, I don't want to go this direction anymore. I want to walk in a new way. Amen. And so we do the about face and we go in a new direction. And then through the... Through the um, obedience to the word, we're baptized, and the Bible says all of our sins are washed away. Hallelujah. And so repentance is our way into the presence of God. Think about it with John the Baptist, right? What did he preach? He preached baptism unto repentance, right? He was the forerunner of God manifested in the flesh. John the Baptist ushered us into the presence of God. Amen? in the visible part of God. And it came through the power of repentance. Amen. When you repent, hallelujah, and you receive the baptism, sometimes people receive the Holy Ghost and then they're baptized. Sometimes people are baptized and later receive the Holy Spirit. Right? Because repentance, <clears throat> true repentance can come at any time. But the thing about it is, is that when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you see your need to be baptized, you have to understand that it was a commandment. If you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. That's why last week I didn't have any problem with a, a lady was praying with at the altar. She just began speaking in tongues. God filled her with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. I think she may be in here this morning. I'm not sure, but we had 13 of them, so thank the Lord for that. But after we were done, I said, uh, somebody said, would you like to be baptized? And she says, well, I don't know. And I says, no. I said, really, you need to be baptized. I said, actually, it was a commandment in the Bible. I didn't have any problem with telling her that because 
when Peter was preaching to uh, Cornelius' household and the Holy Ghost fell, they got the Holy Ghost and Peter commanded them to be baptized. Wasn't a good idea. That's what you got to do. All right, I digress. But repentance is something that we have to have to enter into the presence of God. It's a reconsideration. Amen? It's our first step. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 12. <clears throat> it says, let, a, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it to the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So when we come to God with this true heart, this honest heart, there's no way that sin can be dominant in our life. Because it's not just going through the motions now, it's a change in the heart. What then? We're under this grace. So we have this option. So now can we sin, it says, shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not to whomever ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin to death or obedience unto righteousness. Verse 17. <clears throat> but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart. Everybody say, have a true heart. You have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. So we have to have a sincere heart, right? We have to have a sincere heart. I want to look at a, one of the disciples, uh, one by the name of Nathaniel. We find him spoken of in John chapter 1, verse 45 through 48. Verse 45, we're picking up. Jesus is now choosing his 12 disciples. He's already chosen Philip. Philip findeth Nathanael and say unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, everybody say fig tree, I saw thee, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But we see in uh, verse 45 that Philip and Nathaniel must have been, and maybe a little bit of speculation on my part, but it's just that they they were friends. We find them together in the, in the scripture. In, and we also, probably from this portion of scripture, they had had some discussion, right? Can we see where they probably had some discussion about the coming of the Messiah? Some kind of study in the word of God. Because Philip says, we found him. We found the guy. We've been talking about him. Moses and prophets. They were talking about, they did write, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So also we find that perhaps there's a little prejudice here on the part of Philip or Nathanael because he's saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, even back then they had social classes and the Judeans, they, 
look down on the Galatians, and the Galatians, they look down on the Nazarenes, all right? Nathaniel, he was probably just, you know, echoing the Galatians' contempt for Nazareth. But anyway, we find this little tent there where he's, perhaps, can anything good come out of there? So most of the whole Israel did not believe that the Messiah was going to come out of Nazareth, okay? It was inconceivable to them. And they often mocked the apostles, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would mock and they said, you're unlearned and ignorant people, you're from Galatia, you know. And even they, they railed upon Nicodemus in John chapter 7, verse 52, when he had come to Jesus. They answered and said to them, art thou also from Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So just kind of, a, you know, giving you a little taste of Nathaniel and maybe where he's at and how he's feeling, but... Anyway, the, the point that I want to bring out, the greatest character of Nathaniel is spoken by the lips of Jesus. When he said, Jesus said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Guile means decoy. There's no deceit here. There's no trickery here in this guy. He's an Israelite indeed, which the Greek word means truly or genuine. In other words, he was authentic in his heart. In him, he was authentic. Wouldn't it be nice if the Lord could say about us, behold a Christian in whom there's no deceit. <laughs> Hallelujah. To where hear him say in the end, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Hallelujah. That should be our each and every one of our desires. I know it is. But it comes with being true and honest. And this is where he said, I saw thee under a fig tree. And as I looked into the study that a little bit, the fig tree grew to be about 15 feet in height. And its branches were low and full of leaves. And it would cover about uh, 25 to 30 feet. Provided a lot of shade. And, you know, the houses back then, they were small. And, you know, they didn't have a family room, three baths, two-car garage. You know, they didn't have a den. All right things like that back then. They were just small homes. And so the, the, um, the, the um, fig tree provided not just a shade, but it also pr provided an outdoor place to go. It represented a quiet time to the inner soul. The fig tree stood for peace. And their idea was that when a man could be uh, at peace was when he could be undisturbed under his fig tree. All right? So here Jesus says, I saw you in your quiet time. I saw you under that fig tree. I saw you there when you were contemplating on life or whatever you were doing there. I saw you there. I saw your heart. It was sincere. And indeed, you are true. Amen. And so that's what I'm trying to point out to us in our prayer time, in our times when we get alone with God. We need to get ourselves to have a true heart. Amen. Not just repetitions of words. Because the opposite of that <clears throat> is hypocrisy, right? If we don't have a true heart, then we've got an untrue heart. And that's being a hypocrite. The word hypocrite actually means acting on the stage. Amen. It means pretense. It means playing the part. The actor was called a hypocrite. He was the hypocrite. He was the, 
and not necessarily in a bad way, but we've taken it now to use it in a bad way because what's that person doing? Amen? <clears throat> when Lewis Simpkin played Scrooge in, in the Gospel according to Scrooge, he's portraying somebody that he's not. He's playing the hypocrite, right? That's in the natural. Now, what God's trying to say is don't do that in the spiritual. Don't do that in your walk with the Lord. You cannot portray something that you're not. There's a quote by Benjamin F. Martin. He's a guy from France. I don't know who he is, but I read this quote. Hypocrisy is the art of affecting qualities for the purpose of pretending to an undeserved virtue. In other words, you're trying to receive something, you're just pretending to get there. Amen. It just becomes a purpose of pretending. He goes on to say a lot of other stuff I didn't really understand. But at the end, he said, imagine how frightful truth unvarnished would be. And I thought about that. I said, you know, that is real. That's true, right? Truth is hard for us to face. And for us really to grow in our lives, we have to face the truth of who we are, face the truth of where we are. Unvarnished, it becomes quite a frightening thing. But that's the power of God, amen? He says, the peace that I'm going to give you, it'll keep your heart, it'll keep your mind. You become real, you become open, you become transparent before the Lord. Hypocrisy was something that Jesus, he almost indicated that the whole religious um, establishment at that time were hypocrites. You read in, the, in there and you find all these things, and I just wanted to read... Matthew 23, verse 13 through 33. I want to take the time to read it. I know our time's eluding us, but it's such powerful wording. I just want you to try to realize and put yourself in Jesus' place, perhaps be in the audience there, and what he's saying and how strong he's saying this. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. Not a good word, right? Liars, pretenders. Amen? For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither go ye in yourselves. You don't enter in by being a hypocrite. Neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And you, you hinder everybody else that's around you from actually going in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. After every time he talks to them, he puts that word down, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. You're just pretending. Therefore, ye shall, not, shall ye not receive the greater damnation. Whew. It's powerful wording, isn't it? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell. He calls them children of hell. Than yourselves. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paid your tithe on mint and innocent and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought to you have done and not to leave the others undone. So we see here he's saying, you know, you pay your tithe, that's something that can be seen, right? But the, the inward matters that cannot be seen, you've set those aside. He said, now you, you ought to pay your tithes, but don't leave those undone. He said, but you got to get the heart right. you got to have judgment, amen, mercy, and you got to have faith. He said, you blind guys, you strain at a gnat 
and you swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. We clean the outside. We look good on the outside, but not on the inside. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. So he's saying clean up first the inside, the outside will take care of itself. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27. Hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Think about that. You go to the graveyard, you see the nice gravestone there and how pretty everything looks there. And it says, that's you on the outside, but inside it's just dead men's bones. He said, that's how you are. You're just a pretense. You're just for show. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Verse 33, you serpents, ye generation of vipers. He calls them snakes and vipers. My, the strong language that he used, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? He uses this word hypocrisy to almost categorize the whole scribe and Pharisee movement. Very strong, very powerful. Amen. And so as we come into the presence of God, it's something that we need to remember, amen, that we need to come in with that true heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the what? The heart, in the spirit, and not of the letter. Whose praise is not of men, but of God. Amen. For the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I thought about that and it really struck me when I read it this time. You know, truth, but in unrighteousness. So I thought, really, the issue is not truth, if you think about it. The issue is not truth, even though you have to have truth. But once you have truth, it's the righteousness of the heart. You can have truth, be baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, even, and have hypocrisy if you're not careful. The righteousness of the heart is something that we have to be very careful so righteous acts, he says, you know, be careful that you don't do these righteous acts just to be seen of men, right? But there's a right way and there's also a wrong way for righteous acts. That doesn't mean we don't do righteous things in front of people. The wrong way in Matthew 6, verse 1, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So do you do in some translations... Uh, translate alms as righteous acts. Take heed that you do not your righteous acts before men to be seen of them. There that word seen again gives indication of being up front on some kind of a stage to be seen, right? You want to be seen of men. 
you want to be seen of others. <clears throat> Otherwise, if you do that, he says you have no reward which, uh, from your Father which is in heaven. So that's the wrong way to be seen of men. But the right way also is seen of men, but for a different reason. He says you're the salt of the earth in Matthew 5, verse 13. If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out, trodden underfoot. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is uh, set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Here he's saying you need to do these works to be seen of men, but here's the difference. <clears throat> they see your good works and they glorify your Father, which is in heaven, right? That's the difference. What are we doing it for, in other words? Come back to the conscience state, to the consideration, to the awareness, the moral awareness. Why am I doing this? Because one soul is more, worth more than all the world. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're doing it for soul's sake, for the kingdom's sake. So when we put forth our efforts, let it not be with hypocrisy, not to be seen of men, but so that men can see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. What's it say about this? Is how all men will know that you're my disciples and the what? That you have love one to another. So there comes a warning in Matthew 6. And, and here it is. He says, holding the truth and unrighteousness. You know, here it is again. Acts 2.38, that's the plan of salvation. We need to experience that, right? But after we experience that, there's a lot of, in the word of God that says how we need to live. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what they call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a lot of stuff in there about how we ought to act and conduct ourselves. And this is where he says, take heed. Don't be like the Pharisees. Take heed, it says, means to pay attention, to be cautious about. Take heed how you do your good works. He even said it even means to be beware. So I give the warning this morning, beware. Amen. We all want to make good impressions, right? I always tell my wife, I'm easily motivated by praise. Okay? We all want to make we all want to have make good impressions. We all like to be praised. Makes you feel good, right? We all want to do that. But and there's hypocrites everywhere. They've been from the beginning to the end. There's always going to be hypocrites. Amen. It's just a part of sinful nature of man. Amen. And if you're not careful though, we can find ourselves playing the game of religion. And that's what I want to try to make us beware of this morning and to realize that we need to come into his presence with a true heart. And oh my goodness, what God can do with a true heart. Amen? God dealt with, <clears throat> we don't have the time to go there, but God dealt with this in the Old Testament through both the northern and the southern kingdoms. He dealt with it with Amos through the prophet Amos. And he talked about, he said, you know, your... Um, offerings and your all of your sacrifices he says I'm disgusted with it you know and, and you can read it in Amos chapter number five I believe it is and also in Isaiah chapter number one he talks about the same thing what is the purpose is of the multitude of your sacrifices unto me he says you know he said bring no more vain oblations incense is an abomination unto me the new moons the Sabbaths the calling of assembly he said it's all iniquity. He says, your new moons and near appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are all trouble unto me. I am weary. 
But these are all the things that Jesus instituted, right? God instituted these things in the Old Testament. He instituted those there. But now he's saying, they're a stench in my nostrils. I can't hardly stand them. Why is that? Because they've had perverted them. They had been going through the motions. They had the hypocritical attitude. And that's the outward show with nothing on the inside. Jesus speaks of Isaiah in Mark chapter 7 verse 6. says, he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. We've got to come before his presence with a true heart. Amen. Jesus saw Isaiah's prophecy as being relevant for his day and is still relevant for our day. Amen. We can't just praise him with our lips. We've got to praise him with our heart. Amen. So what's the solution to all this? I close uh, with this. What's the solution for us to being real? Well, to be real, you've got to answer the questions. Where are you? You've got to ask yourself that. Where are you this morning? Where is your relationship with the Lord? Why or what are you hiding? Don't hide it from the Lord. Amen. Are you doing what the Bible says, what God says not to do? All right. These are all things we have to answer the tough questions. And we have to take heed. We've got to beware. There are consequences. Severe consequences. Jesus hates it. He was very, very upfront about that. Take responsibility for your own life. And remember this about the heart. Jeremiah said in 17, 9, and 10, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't really even hardly know our own heart. That's why we've got to get before the Lord. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Psalms 19 Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. I read that a few years ago back and it just stuck my mind. Secret faults? <laughs> I got enough trouble with my known faults. And now I got some secret faults. But it's all about God getting into our heart, opening up our heart, being real. And sometimes he reveals to us some things that, oh, I didn't know I was doing that. That's not right. And that's how great God is. But our heart is, it's wicked. And he, we have to allow God to get in there and do his work upon it. Amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of what? My heart be acceptable in thy sight. We have power over our thoughts. And that's what gets into our hearts. And that's a whole other Bible study on what you put before yourself and what you allow into your heart. But we have power over your heart. You can bring into captivity every thought. That's scripture. I think it's 2 Corinthians 10. Somewhere in there. <clears throat> Verse 3 and through 5. We can bring into, every, into thought that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of those strongholds, those things in our mind that pollute ourselves. It says bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience. I read that one time and I thought, wow, I'm far from that. But you know what? When you get in and ask God to take control of those things and you ask God, he says you can bring them into captivity. The old saying that says you can't keep the bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hand, right? The thoughts are going to come, but you can bring those into captivity through the power of God with a true heart. Amen?
So I close with this verse, Psalms chapter 139, 23 and 24. This is what we got to do through prayer. Say, God, search me and know my heart. Amen. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. Is there any wicked way in me, Lord? Lead me in the way everlasting. That's the way we want to go, isn't it? Amen. We're going to have a great service this morning. So as we enter into the presence of God through worship and through the powerful preaching of Brother Bush this morning, let's come with a true heart. Let's see what God will do for us in our midst. Amen. Praise God. You've been a great audience. God bless you.